Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Dr. Tim J. Smith, the founder of Wiglaf Pricing. We're going to be looking at how you can raise your prices and get paid bigger bonuses, but without compromising the value that you deliver. We're going to look at how you can develop some ideas around pricing guidance, identifying what a good closing price is, what a minimum acceptable price is, and how you can defend any position that you need to when you're putting your business case forward. So without any further ado, Tim, welcome. Ah, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving us maybe a couple of minutes on your history and how you ended up in this sanctified role, helping people not give away vast amounts of money needlessly? I've been working in pricing. I've been working for 30 years, pricing specifically for the past 20 years, roughly. I've written textbooks. I've written numerous management books. I've gone around the planet speaking about pricing. I got here serendipitously by talking about quantitative marketing and how it can help improve performance. And then a client hired me to look at their pricing based upon an article I wrote. And I found that to be a very profitable and, and positive impact area for me to work. So I stuck. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. But um, for those of us curious, what, what is quantitative marketing? Yes, that was the problem. It doesn't sell very well. <laughs> Effectively, it means applying mathematics to marketing questions, and pricing is a mathematical marketing problem. Uh, okay, right. Well, uh, your your time has come again in that case, uh, given the advent of some of the tech that's around being able mm -hmm. to do so much of the maths and the grunt work for us. Okay, really interesting. So let, let's start with what is pricing and why is it so important? Uh, well, every business interaction has results in money being exchanged. Pricing simply determines how much money you're going to ask for in that particular relationship and maybe achieve. Depends on how your relationship is to negotiation. So pricing is a fundamental part of every business relationship. If that business relationship is to be sustainable, is to last. Okay. So let's start out with the data that we need to collect and the research we need to do to do good, uh, effective pricing. What is the information that the seller and marketing need to be gathering in the early stages of the buyer's journey so that they can best keep the pricing team informed of what's going on within that specific account? Well, I want to back us up before you even talk to the customer. And before you actually go and start marketing and hit with the question of what's the value I'm delivering. Uh, That's fair. Okay, I take delivering. it back, I surrender. <laughs> yeah, the value you're delivering is going to determine the price you can extract from that relationship. Okay. Before the product gets developed or the offering gets defined, pricing can come in, should come in, and help define the value on the table. Uh, using an economic, using a academic term, we'd call that the economic value to the customer. Show me the money. Show me the money put on the table by doing business with us. Show me how it actually improves the revenue, reduces the cost, drives profitability for the customer. Or show me how you set the relationship to the competitor. And if you're better, you get to charge a higher price. If you're worse, you're going to have to be relegated to a lower price, but show me the money. And that's where we need to begin with, with any story about pricing, is starting with the, uh, the economic value to the customer, which really just defines the value on the table in having a relationship with me as a supplier. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So who needs to be involved on that team, ideally? Ideally, it's going to involve the offering management, the sales management, and the a bit of finance, just to make sure that your pricing is above your cost to produce. And I have been asked this question, what happens if your price is below your variable cost? And the answer is pretty simple. You don't do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Palamine worked for a paper company when he was 19. Now, bear in mind, he's my age now. 
And the owner of the paper company managed to get HP as a customer. And they were losing a penny a ream. He pointed this out. And the guy said to him, young man, what you don't understand is because HP is such a big name, it will pay for itself. Well, they bankrupted them. He ignored the, the obvious advice, which is look at the balance sheet. And if you, um, yeah, it's Mr. McCorver, uh, I think, from hard times. And he said, income 20 shillings, outgoings 19 shillings and sixpence, happy days. Income 20 pounds, outgoings 20 pounds and sixpence, debtors prison. Well, I think we've got to start uh, having a dose of reality uh, in these conversations, because I don't think a lot of people think about their pricing in any way, shape or form with to the depth that you're describing here. So what are the components that make up a good pricing model and how do we feed no, it? I want to go back to something you said, the, the, think about pricing deeply. And I want to stick with that question because I don't think most people in business do. No. You take a look at pricing, uh, one could call it the uh, mini father child of business. That's a very polite way of describing it. If you take a look at pricing and finance, it's an input into finance. Mostly finance is about reporting, major return on investment and uh, investment decisions. They're not actually teach pricing as a part of your finance curriculum, or rarely do. It's not really there. It's, it doesn't really belong in, in finance. Pricing does not. Finance may touch it, but it's not their core competency. Same with sales. Every salesperson must touch pricing. That is, that is a part of the negotiation and the relationship with their customers. And they put forth pricing and talk about pricing and negotiate pricing. That, But did the salesperson, where along their curriculum, upon their path, that they have to really dive deeply into modeling the value delivered or understanding the variance in price captured among different market segments. And you may go to marketing and say, marketing, you do pricing, it's one of your four Ps. But again, you look at the four Ps, most people in marketing, most of the budget in marketing is goes to marketing communications, branding, looks, maybe it goes to product management, but where does pricing come in? And pricing is the uh, opposite of most of your marketing levers. I like to call it the real politic of marketing. It's the ugly stepchild, isn't it? I like to call it the real politic, meaning <laughs> the rest of marketing is focused on delighting the customer. I want to make the customer feel great about my brand. I want to make it easy for them to acquire it. I want to make it easy for them to understand. I want to make sure that this product, this offering, this service really meets my customer needs and really makes my customer love me. Well, pricing says, and because you love me, I'm taking something from you. The focus of our relationship is how much money I make from you based upon how much value I deliver you. It's the real politic. It's not the same. I'm not going to delight my customer by taking more money out of them. But the relationship must be one based upon financial, mutually beneficial relationship. And that means taking money. It's the real politic of business. Why are we talking to each other? To exchange value. I'm delivering and you're giving. Okay. So all of that was a long way of saying that pricing is a unique field. And it really does require specialists at many organizations. Well, if you're not making money, you cannot continue to delight customers because you're going to go out of business or you're going to get fired. So, I mean, uh, the, the argument is circular. And the, the challenge is then, uh, how do we convey this uh, to um, people okay. in decision-making authority that they need to look at the problem through different lenses? Because... If they're not looking at pricing, then they're probably going to be from a revenue at any cost model. And in this market, where money is now becoming quite expensive, and many of these organizations are up to their eyeballs in debt that they never thought they were going to have to service at 5% interest rates or higher, and now facing also inflation, they're facing the cost of talent and all of that, pricing becomes a, a, a vitally important tool for finance. What involvement does finance have 
in defining pricing? And how do you stop them from making it just the balance sheet exercise? Because they will kill the relationship if they do that. That's exactly the problem of having finance control pricing 100%. The finance, or the, the most pejorative statement I have is finance rarely knows what a customer looks like. And unique finance can be trained. I've seen great people in pricing come from a finance background because of their math, but it's not the same as finance itself. And it's somewhere along the area where you got to get sales, marketing, and finance aligned. And that's where a pricing person comes in to help drive that relationship, that, that alignment of understanding and move the uh, move the pricing forward. So I 100% agree with you that if it's just a finance exercise, we have problems. Uh, we have also weird examples where in the tech industry, for a long time, it was all about just simply users are driving attraction at the website or just simply getting how many downloads of this. And you had Uber in taxis, you had Amazon and shipping. These companies, however, would go for, in Amazon's case, I think it was 24 years before they ever made a profit. Most companies cannot live for 24 years without making money. So they become the wrong, they become like the superstar child about how to run a business, but then it's the wrong story. Let's run a business for 20 years, losing money year after year. It makes no sense if you're, say, Phillips or BP uh, or, you know, something. Or mom and pop that has yeah. to make the mortgage and payroll. Right. It just doesn't work. So they became the wrong standard bearer for how to manage price. And Amazon's approach literally was always be the cheapest in the market and we'll move it out. That stopped. Uber's approach was, how do I be cheaper than a, than a black cab or a cab? And then they started to hit regulations and they couldn't do it anymore. And their growth story slowed down. So it's the question of, you know, what's reality look like for us as real businesses running, you know, with a real need to deliver profit to either me, the owner, or my shareholders at a minimum. This then speaks to a shift that I'm seeing. And I, I don't know whether it's just because of the people that I'm dealing with and we think in similar ways. I want to make sure it's not an echo chamber. But I think salespeople need to become far more financially literate than most of us are. The ability to read a balance sheet would be a really good start. The ability to have financial conversations with the CFO, to understand the mechanics and the moving parts that make up the cost of delivering and selling this service. So let's go back to that financial discussion with the CFO, the client CFO, or even if your relationship isn't a multi-million dollar sale, it's just a small sale, you still have to go through a purchasing agent who's going to want to see the model as to why your price should be the price you're asking. And if you want to get anything better than simply, I got the same price as my next competitor over, but it's lower, so you buy from me. You want to move the conversation beyond that. You have to show them a value model, a model of the value on the table. Now, if the price, if the salesperson's doing this, or they pull in a pricing expert who has the new title, value expert, it doesn't matter, but somehow that communication, that real message must be communicated to the customer and if the company is not providing the customer with the model, the value put on the table, that customer will make it up and throw away half the value that the company is actually delivering. And so give the customer a clear vision of the money you're putting on the table. Well, I was on a call where we were looking at how ChatGPT could be used for salespeople. And one of the, uh, the people on the call said that 20 years ago, he hired 20 Indian mathematicians to reverse engineer um, the costs of raw materials and manufacture because they, uh, they wanted to buy some kit. And now, imagine what you can do with the AI if you're asking it just the right questions as a buyer. And very few salespeople and very few marketers and very few uh, senior executives are looking at it through the lens of their customer and how they will use uh, the technologies like Jasper and ChatGPT and this massive explosion, you know, it's now in everything. It's in Bing. 
Um, I was on a call earlier today and um, it was the chap's birthday uh, and he used Bing, uh, using ChatGPT to work out interesting things to do on his birthday that were local, that were unusual, and then uh, really interesting food. And it basically became a travel manager. Now, think about how buyers can apply something like this. It forces to us to up our game. It does. It does. Significantly and very quickly, without any delay. I mean, the, the, to me, this is a clarion call, an urgent clarion call to get your acts together. And even with chat GPT or some of the other GPT type uh, approaches for AI, you have to feed it with the right prompts to get the And if the salespeople are not prompting the purchasing agent or the finance team of the customer on what that value is and why that's the value they're putting on the table, they're just going to be reduced down to cost. And one of the really interesting things is that you can model scenarios and scenario plan for every different eventuality. So that's down to the level of experience and imagination that the cross-functional team has in terms of designing the uh, the uh, queries, because you can start building scenarios and models to identify what if we do this, if we add another 1%, what if um, inflation spikes by half a percent more, 1% more, 2% more, uh, and you can list all these different criteria and have these scenarios and run all of this. Now, as a buyer, that's really powerful because you can start stress testing how salespeople are likely to behave. I mean, that's really interesting. Now, you if, if we get smart, I think the real value, because you said it right at the beginning, is get these cross-functional teams to collaborate. Well, what if we um, start collaborating with the partners as well and with customers? Customers want to pay fairly. Very few customers are actually looking for just the cheapest price. They only go for the cheapest price because they don't understand the difference in value of paying a premium. Because it's almost never about the money, is it? Ultimately. There are such things as budget constraints. And those are real, uh, but they're, if they're budget constraints, again, that's not a customer. They, 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 or that becomes a bin at which you put the customer in and say, this is as much as they can spend. And I now reduce the offering to fit that bin. But that's, you know, that's a different problem space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's start thinking about how we can create some pricing guidance frameworks around closing prices, minimum acceptables, how the costs of um, manufacture or delivery are uh, created so that we we start to think about the areas that we should be questioning ourselves. So from the economic value of the customer study, one would come out with a good model of the value you're putting on the table for given customers. And it becomes something you can customize for every single customer. So you know the difference between a large customer and a small customer on the value on the table. A customer in the uh, carpet sector, separate from a customer in the plastic injection molding business. You know, these different market segments, different sizes, different geographies, maybe Scotland versus Ireland, uh, whatever. You have all these different prices out there. And the economic value of the customer shows that model and it shows the value on the table. Then from there, you extract out the price I should be getting at a good level, my list price for that customer. What I consider to be a, a good negotiation and accept, you know, and a, a good negotiation, and that's workable, the expected outcome of the negotiation. And then finally, the no-go zone, the walk-away price, the price where it says, you're wasting my time, Mr. Customer. We do not actually have a relationship that can be sustained. Uh, this is not an offer. This is not a something we can deliver at that price and feel good about. So therefore, we suggest you go and hunt for what you need from somebody else because we're we're not delivering at that price. So you you always have a a stretch goal, a list price, an expected price. And a walk away price. So best case, 
acceptable, worst acceptable walk away? Well, yeah, I reduce it down to three, but you know, whatever. Oh, I, thought I had full. Okay. Yeah, Sorry. whatever names you want to put on those. Stretch goal, realistic, and walk away. Okay. So, got it, got it. And that comes out of the economic value of the customer when you're launching a new product and when you're talking with them. Then we get down to the statistical exercise you can play. Uh, suppose you are selling carpets into Europe and you've been selling the same carpets or carpet per square yard. Oops, we're now in Britain, so we'll stick with meters. No, 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 we're, we're probably going to go back to Imperial before you know it. <laughs> uh, and we, uh, old, old folk like me still think in uh, feet and yards. Yeah, well, I've I've had to play with both. Anyway, so we're back in the square yard, square meters, and uh, your price per square meter might vary between the industrial sector, the residential sector, new construct versus uh, replacement areas, retail. You have all these variations, and you can play statistical exercises and tease out out of this for a given customer at a given time. And a given time of the year for a given type of segmentation of type, I expect them to pay, or past customers in this situation have always been paying on average, the average price. When I'm looking at a great price, comes a stretch goal, even though your list price may be something different, comes a stretch goal. And what I'm saying, the bottom, the bottom price, the price that I really should not accept anymore because only. It's unacceptable. So you can use statistics, artificial intelligence, if you like, and that artificial intelligence can tell you what price you should be getting from a customer, given a situation, given their type, given their segment, given their size. And you can do that with pricing as well. And pricing can feed that into salespeople to make them more successful. And by doing that, have you ever been able to identify gaps in the market? Where um, that price uh, that price differential uh, is not really being well served, or other opportunities like that. Yes, yeah. More often, I found that what management thinks they were doing and what they're actually doing are incongruent. Or they said that they wanted to uh, give the large customers a larger discount than the small customers, or a bigger rebate than the small customers. Then you do the stats and you realize that all customers were getting the same rebate at the end of the year, that there was no correlation, that the management said they were doing this, that was their strategy, but their execution's way over here. And when you're looking at these two different issues, then you ask, have to ask management, so what do you want to do? You want to follow what you're actually doing, or do you want to follow where you said your goal is? What, what is your goal? And uh, it becomes weird. The strange, the worst case scenario I saw was there was a sizable difference, about a 30% difference between a large customer and a small customer in terms of the average price extract. But the variance was so wide, it was just crazy. So while the average large customer was getting 30% lower price than a small customer, some small customers were even getting a lower price than the big customer. Mm -hmm. And you look at this and you're like, why are you doing this? There's no need for you to do this. You're just leaving money on the table. Stop it. Okay. So let's have a quick think about the ability to defend your price. When you're putting together your pricing model, what are the components that are absolutely essential that as a salesperson, if you don't have command of those numbers, then chances are when you get to finance, you're going to be just laughed out. So we have two issues there. One is back to show me the table, show me the value on the table, and tell me how much, tell me why, as well as determining from there how much value I should capture, the capturable value versus the value on the table. Then you have the uh, the the confidence, the stamina, the the issues about having. Uh, resilience and, and belief that the price you're asking for should be paid. And that's where the statistics is, comes in and says, you know, past customers, we have a history, have always been paying us on average this price. And when they're a great customer, they pay us this higher price. 
So we should really start our negotiations up at that higher price that we expect that we could close at, maybe negotiate down to the expected. But when they start to get close to the walk away price, let's just start to, you know, slow it down here because this is not going to work for us. Okay, so we we are now entering into the realms of dealing with fragile and frail human beings in the form of salespeople and their really bad relationship with money and their poor money concept, uh, which will often get in the way, and also their self-concept and their inner dialogue when it comes to talking about money. Uh, I see salespeople choke, um, their lips go dry, um, they start to get nervous and their voice starts to um, uh, crack. They get very, very uncomfortable. You can see it in their cheeks and their throat. So this emotional hook, that the, the emotional tie that human beings have to when they start talking about money very often acts as a barrier. What can a pricing specialist help them to do uh, in order to manage that and rehearse it so that when the conversation comes up, they've lived it so often that that pricing conversation doesn't feel like it's the, the earth is going to swallow them up. You've hit back on the issue of the real politics of, of sales is pricing. It's a real politic issue. Most of sales is about delighting the customer, building that relationship, building that sense of trust, trust being a relationship of, you know, can you do what you said you would do? Are you competent? Do you actually care about me? Do you have some level of benevolence? Do you have some emotional tie into my well-being as well as your own? And, and uh, one other component to, I forgot what it was off the top of my head, saying things that represent the actual truth. Okay, you become a-, a Credibility truth. plus reliability plus intimacy over low self-orientation. Right, right. So that's the focus of what most of the salesperson's time is. But every, every, at some point in that relationship development, we must go back to the issue of why are we in a relationship? It's because my company is delivering your company or my, my company is delivering you as an individual value, something you actually want that helps you and your company and your life be better. Now, in exchange for me delivering you value, you must pay me. And that's a real politic discussion. That's part one. The other part is I got to give them some conviction. I got to give them some, some evidence that says that that customer should be able to pay you the amount that you're being asked to do. And pricing's job is to give those salespeople those tools, those, that, those points of contention that says that that customer in this situation at this time really should be paying me a high price up here not this lowball price that they try to hit me at. And if they just want the lowball price, you know, they're kicking my tires and I ain't got time for that. Let them kick my tires and I'll walk away. Okay. So another question then. A lot of the people listening may well be selling something intangible. And often they will say that it's impossible to measure. How does one price something like that effectively? Because there are plenty of services out there that if they do measure stuff, they're probably measuring the wrong things, like you know, marketing agencies. They measure vanity metrics, but um, I don't know many marketing agencies that actually give a damn about whether you sold anything and you got money in the bank that you collected. <laughs> and that's the difference between marketing communications and pricing. We actually do care if you make money yeah. <laughs> for pricing and implementation. So okay. is pricing a function of marketing then? I teach as well at a university, DePaul, after St. Vincent DePaul, a French dead priest, right. whatever. Yep. And in teaching marketing, there are four Ps, product, price, place, promotion. So price is considered one of the things you teach. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was the key point of your question. I forgot what your key question well, was. The, the question is, where does pricing sit? Is it a horizontal function? Oh, the, where does it sit? We're going to table that and come back to it. I want to go back to your question first about pricing intangibles. Ah. When I look at the economic value to the customer, when I look at trying to define the value to the table, in a B2B context, I want an actual 
demonstration of how I reduce risk of a bad thing happening, improve their revenue, or reduce their cost. Mm-hmm. Out of those three, the most common one is reduce the cost. So for instance, I'm selling a knife, a knife for cutting cardboard, for instance. And you can buy my knife, you can buy my competitor's knife. That's a one-for-one re- displacement, one pound for one pound sterling, right? Yep. Now, perhaps though my knife lasts three times longer than my competitor's knife, I can now do some math to figure out, okay, how much money am I saving you because my knife lasts three times longer than my competitor's? Am I saving you from labor of having to go and find another knife off the shelf? Am I saving you time because you can just keep, you can keep machine cutting things on a regular basis and I don't have to change out the knives as often? Am I saving, and how does that time translate again into productivity, cost, savings? Am I saving a risk reduction of not having downtime on the machine because my knife is more reliable? How is this, beyond the apples for apples comparison, in what ways am I an orange or a mango or a parsnip? Parsnips, not a very (laughs) festival to eat. They're on a level with celery in my book. (laughs) Celery act, I like as well. Anyway. (laughs) Food of the devil. And I can do these economic discussions, economic valuations, and I can even share them with the customer and let them change the parameters and say, yes, that's important or not. That's totally separate from the emotional. The first one is real financial economic impact. The next one is the emotional impacts. The fact that you're buying a pair of Nikes versus Adidas or Pumas. Uh, The fact that you're shopping at Tesco versus Costco or Aldi or whoever you're shopping at. Uh, The fact that you're buying Heinz ketchup rather than the Aldi. Yeah. Yeah. These become emotional issues. And I want to go back to that first example of Nike, Pumas, Adidas. Yeah. If you think about them, all of those trainers will be sold for roughly the same price. Now, there's a big difference between Nike, Adidas, and Pumas and their price versus the Tesco price for the generic shoe. And that's going to be much lower. And if you're a fancy runner, there's probably shoes that are far more expensive than any of those that you need for running. Or if you're a Shimano version. Yeah, yeah. So you have the variations up there, but the emotional stuff kind of puts you in a a category that says you should be in this area. And saying I'm gonna raise my price by 3% because of my emotion over my equally emotional competitors, that's ridiculous to me. You can try it, but that's the vanity pricing that you spoke of earlier. You've touched on stuff that I teach salespeople to look for. Because if you don't understand this stuff, you can't do pain by numbers. If you want to be able to build the case so that your sponsors and your champions can take the case internally, you need to know how their numbers are carved up. You need to know how the individuals that you sell to are being measured, compensated, rewarded, promoted, fired. And that comes through understanding the mathematics of how the business runs. You need to understand uh, the mathematics of the motions that they have to go through, the number of touches, the downtime. If you're selling to manufacturing, stuff like turnover of the product, the, the amount of maintenance time, making sure that planned maintenance is built in so that you don't end up running the machinery into the ground because it's a short-term thing uh, economy and the guy might get promoted, but the poor bugger who comes after gets fired and so do the next two. And you've lost three years. So you've got to think about all of these things. Right. And that's exactly the issue here, Marcus. And that's what pricing does for salespeople. Because they give those salespeople those models. We don't just give them the model in general. Like say, this is how the average market is. Because there is no such thing as an average customer. Every customer. We then also give them a model where, and the questions to ask. So the salesperson simply is given a list of five questions to ask. Ask those questions of the customer. Questions like, how many square feet of retail space do you have? 
you know, simple questions, nothing like how much are you willing to pay? Because that's not going to work. You know, mm-hmm. basic questions to describe the company. How many employees do you work there? What portion of your farming for apples goes to chemicals for killing moths so that your apples look pretty? Mm-hmm. These are basic questions that can be asked, okay? Without asking how much are you going to pay? Now, from those questions, you can feed it into the model. One of the partners I work with turns it into a pretty PDFs that is everyone is customized for individual customers. And the salesperson only has to ask the questions and then says, here's what our models say our value is. And these are the reasons why you can just read it off the printout. The salesperson doesn't have to become an expert at modeling value. That's asking too much. They just become the relationship manager of collecting the information about the situation of the customer, which is a sales job, and feeding back the information saying, based upon the information you give me, the situation, the problem you're solving, here's the implications of that problem, and here's your needs payoff. Sten Selling, Neil Rackman, 101, back in the 1970s, he wrote this stuff. Is Neil still popular in the, in the UK? Uh, yeah, well, Rackham's still around, um, and Spin is still being used. It's been displaced by Medic and Challenger and those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. They're all pretty much derivatives from Sandler, including Spin, because you look at the behavior of most of the top sellers that they followed they're following that kind of methodology because it's actually a human communications model. Um, It's nothing more than that. Now, the problem happens when you start treating your sales playbook as dogma and you don't remember that you've got a human being and you don't sell to the company, you sell to the human being and more importantly, you sell to their brain. Now, one of the really interesting things that Tim has just highlighted in his previous of the conversation was just the very importance of highlighting the right stuff, not the wrong stuff. When you are capturing that uh, financial information as a seller, um, it allows you to build the customer's idea of what value they're going to get before you hit them with the sticker price. And you want to do this because if you don't, chances are they will just see cost And when people see cost, then they're looking to reduce the cost. If you sold it right, what they will be thinking instead of how cheap can I get this for, it's where am I going to find the money to pay for it? And if you do this correctly and you use the partnership with the pricing specialist to help you direct your questioning, you can build a really good understanding and get the BANT information that you need without asking any BANT type questions. And the reason you don't want to ask BANT type questions is chances are you're going to trigger the disgust reflex in the buyer's brain, which is the last thing you really want to do, triggering either disgust or contempt. Check out the insular, I-N-S-U-L-A part of the brain if you want to do your own research. So Tim, sorry, I I cut you off, but I thought there was an important point to make. No, you're right. You're, you're exactly right. And I use spin selling as one example. I could have used the challenger sale or, uh, you know, they're let's, all good. let's go away or Miller Hyman or yeah, all the sales methodologies at some point says we got to talk money, mm-hmm. the nature of our relationship. And the pricing's job is to arm the salesperson with the right questions to ask and with the right evidence to present. It enables them to enter that conversation with confidence of what the price that customer should be should pay on average, what a great price would be, and what price you just simply say, I'm done, I'm out. Well, if you're thinking strategically rather than simply tactically, would it not make sense to be having the conversation with your pricing team right up front so that you can seed your marketing? You can start anchoring pricing in their minds early in the conversation as you're nurturing the relationship because most people go from top to the bottom of the funnel and they're not spending anywhere near enough emphasis or effort on the middle of the funnel which is why it ends up bulging and so many of them end up dying off um just dying on the vine i'm hearing what you're saying marcus and my mind went somewhere else when do they pull me in 
for helping to guide that strategic question. And the truth is they, they generally pull me in before they even talk to customers. Like part of the annual sales meeting program is to help show people, salespeople, how this pricing should be uh, for a particular customer or second. Or before we launch a new product, what should the price be? There is a tactical part that's missing in, in our conversation so far. And that is the way at which you inform the salespeople at the moment of dealing with customers. So not like the annual sales kickoff meeting where we're trying to guide strategy, but actually dealing with individual customers. When the rubber hits the road. Yeah. And one of the failures that has happened in the past is you gave salespeople just a list price and said, go at it. And then we and you can discount by up to 30%. So they do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then we started to add in those rules, discount up to 30%. Then it goes to the sales manager and the sales manager caves. You know, the best way to get a lower price is to basically escalate it to the CEO who always has to look like a hero and close the deal. So we have to move beyond that and actually show the salesperson up front. Here's the price we expect you to, you should be closing out. And if you close here, here's how much money you make at the end of the quarter or at the bonus. And every time you ranch it down, I'm going to take money away from you and but tell you back, Mr. Salesperson, Ms. Salesperson, how much money you could have made if you hadn't conceded so much in price. So you're helping the salesperson feel the impact of the price concession on their own back pocket. Okay. It at the time of you know putting in the customer name, all the way through to the and I'm closing this deal. Okay, so why is the pricing team not involved in conversations annually with the finance team around the compensation plan? We should be. I, I understand that, but my assumption was that you're not, because most comp plans are. Uh, we need to grow 30% in order to make our notional target. And let's pluck a number from the air with next to no thought about whether the territory can sustain it or our sales team's capable or whether the customers even want that uh, volume. So, so, so at my best clients, I have gone there. Okay. And, but I said it for my best clients. The first thing is the pricing needs to give salespeople a realistic sales, you know, price to close. Yep. And then salespeople have to test it, and then they have to learn that they can trust it. Mm -hmm. After they, so that's the basic things. Pricing needs to do the blocking and tackling of the arming salespeople with the knowledge of where to go in the market. When they've accomplished that basic goal, then pricing can say, and now I'm going to affect your target book, your pocketbook. If you hit my targets or do better, I'm going to pay you a lot more than what you were making last year. And if you can't hit my targets, I'm going to take money away from you faster than I did before. I'm going to change it from a revenue-based compensation into a deal quality-based compensation. And my deal quality-based compensation, the target I may have for Northern Scotland is different from the target I have down in Wales. Because, you know, in different territories. And, the opportunity for selling things for growing wheat in Northern Scotland are pretty low, but <laughs> down in Wales. I think wheat's a good example. Uh, uh, well, I'm not sure how much wheat's grown in Wales. It's uh, mainly sheep, I think, but I'm sure they have fields. <laughs> but whenever I've driven through it, I've noticed it being very green. It just strikes me that if we took a little bit more time to think about the cross-functional nature and the intersectional nature of the different functions in sales and marketing, uh, in finance, in, uh, with pricing, operations, and we started to think more cohesively, we could be way more profitable. And this is where pricing could really come into their own. Because in this point, at this stage in the market, when everyone is you know, cutting costs and auditing all of their suppliers and all of that, what a fantastic opportunity uh, for vendors to start working together with their customers to work on pricing that serves both sides. 
So I feel like you've just caught the thesis behind my book, Pricing Done Right. That is exactly the thesis of the entire book. Right. There's a function called pricing, and pricing sits in between sales, marketing, and finance. And they engage operations and legal where they need to. And by actually combining the information and insight from these three different departments, plus others as needed, we can deliver a better, healthier business. And we can help create alignment where everybody's making more money, acting faster, higher productivity. Okay. So that then raises another really interesting question. Sorry about this, which is, Given the amount of information that is flowing or should be flowing through your customer success or operations team, how does that inform the pricing team? And what information do we want the CS people to be gathering in order to better inform the entire gamut of sales, marketing, management, and pricing? So back on the issue of dealing with many many customers, and I'm selling a standard product, for example. I can collect all of that information, use a pricing team to run the statistics and artificial intelligence to help guide that. And that becomes something that's a normal process. And I've been writing articles about the pricing spinometer, trying to measure their spine within an organization of their pricing. Do they have a spine or not? And you got to measure it, so hence the term spinometer, a pricing spinometer. And you'll see that some organizations have gone well down this path, and they really do have some pricing spine there. I think uh, Phillips would be a nice example. Yeah, pricing spinometer. And you see other organizations that are just completely blithe to it, almost like they, they are unaware of it. Now, I've been sticking with the American Fortune 500 companies because we have good you know, reporting, I live in the States and I can read English. Could have used the FTSE, FTSE 100, but chose the S&P 500. And it's amazing to me how many companies have zero impact, zero focus on pricing. And they talk about how they want to raise prices, but you're asking how, who, with what, based on what. And I've been reading the press and the press is really bad about talking about pricing. It's like they don't understand the concept of elasticity or how economics works. And they said that I raised prices 10%, but I lost 1% of my volume. Oh my gosh, the world is horrible. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, if I raised the price 10% and only lost 1% of the volume, I should raise it another 10% because my prices are going way up here. Right, but Tim, what we're dealing with here very often is leadership and management are making decisions based on fear and they're also basing it on very limited data because the insight that they have because of the way they've structured their systems and what they uh, what they measure doesn't inform them of anything really significant that they can use in order to adjust future performance they're so reporting backwards so you're hitting upon the issue that you asked much earlier, where should pricing report? Mm -hmm. It should report to the CEO. Who gets fired when pricing messes up at a corporation? The CEO. It's a CEO's responsibility to deliver profitability. There's a, a book written by, uh, I believe, a guy out of the Netherlands. Mark Schenkius? No, no. He argued heavily that pricing should report to the CEO and it's a, a new new paradigm. And then after he wrote his book, he then got a job as a pricing expert reporting directly to the CEO. You're seeing uh, random companies around the globe where pricing does become its own function reporting directly to the CEO. Interesting. Outside of that, where does pricing report? I've seen pricing report to finance, marketing, and sales. It reports all over the board. Often it's put in finance because marketing and sales can't do the math. <laughs> That's fair. Just, you know, this is no, 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 it's fair. That's why we end um, up in sales, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> uh, otherwise we would have become pricing experts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just reality. 
And then sometimes I see it put into marketing, uh, and there it becomes uh, more of a product-oriented issue. It fits well in strategic marketing. When it's in sales, it often becomes part of your rev op, um, so your, your operations management. I have seen pricing report to your chief revenue officer as becoming a more popular title now, because yeah. revenue has to deal with pricing. And then the third, a totally different model, not even third, we're now talking fourth and fifth model, is that the company has its functional silos, but then they have the strategy group way over here. Yeah. And the strategy group would include pricing as part of it, who then goes and deals with the rest of the areas. You know, for a while, I was kind of indifferent on this point. And I am increasingly convinced that pricing really should report to the CEO. And what would be good about that? Well, the, exactly the information you're missing that, that you raised. Does the CEO understand the opportunity space down here? Uh, how much money could be made? When the CEO says, I want to go and penetrate a new off uh, market, do they mean lower the price to penetrate it? Or do they mean like spend money on marketing and, and salespeople to go penetrate this? Do they want to create a new brand or not? You can even look it up on Investopedia. They talk about penetrating a new market. One of the options is lower the price. Now, if making money is the goal of a business and capitalism, lowering the price is really counter to that goal in almost every situation. Unless the price volume trade-off points differently, generally companies can raise the price and make more money. Yet I see repeatedly this orientation of saying we need market share We'll lower the price. I don't know how common this is. I do know, actually. I've worked enough in Europe. Where you start looking at CEO orientations and they say, well, we want to reduce our cost by 0.5% in overhead, reduce our variable cost by 1.2%. Uh, we want to improve our market share from 37% to 37.5%. And you start coming out with all these really precise metrics. And you're like, are you after making money or managing a bunch of metrics? Because what pricing does is we put money on the table to be played with. And the money's big. I mean, I've seen a six, six additional margin points, you know, 6% more margin being earned in one year based upon a pricing initiative. More common numbers close to one, maybe 2%. Rarely do we hit zero. And this isn't just me. This is across the board. When you get a pricing expert or a pricing technology in there, that's the goal. That's the goal is to add one to 2% more uh, revenue without any loss in sales and make more money. Well, th th this again, I think is why we've really got to start asking much better questions as management and leadership, because um, the tendency is to look for a really simplistic surface or symptomatic issue and then throw some money or bodies or pro um, technology at the problem. And what they're not looking at is the bigger whole. Businesses are orga organisms. They're, you know, think of them like an organic entity. And there are many different moving parts. If the gut system or the, uh, the endocrine system or the nervous system is not working well, then in all probability, you're going to get sick. And that's what happens to businesses all the time. And it's down to lack of communication, lack of cohesion, and all of this different politicking going after different agendas. If we had the leadership and everyone focused on, we must deliver solutions to our customers that mean they keep coming back year after year, and we have to make a profit to do so. And that is our mission. How do we build a business around those principles, around those objectives? And then you build the business out from there. But it doesn't seem to, you know, you start out in business and then you think, oh, I hate selling. So you hire a salesperson. We hire about 10 and eventually find one that can just about wipe their own bottom. And then they get you know, a little bit um, big for their boots and they say, well, I'm sick of doing, doing the lead gen. So let's hire someone in marketing. And there's always this hangover and this lag and all the wrong people reporting to the wrong people. You know, sales doesn't report to marketing, which I think they should do. And finance doesn't report to HR, which I think they ought to. Because if you treated your people well 
and you got the best out of them, you wouldn't need to keep replacing them. And you wouldn't need to keep throwing money and technology at stuff that is basically gener generating waste. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, when I wrote the book, Pricing Done Right, the focus was on organizational design and what you can expect by improving the pricing function within an organization and how pricing should interact with the rest of the org. Because, well, I had a thesis. Before I wrote Pricing Done Right, I wrote Pricing Strategy textbook on how to do pricing. Before I wrote that, I wrote another textbook on how to do statistics and artificial and applied to marketing. The thoughts were initially, if I can just help my marketing people understand math better, we can get more jobs done in <laughs> marketing. Well, that was a silly idea. Marketing people don't like to do that. Okay, okay, so that's fine. Most MBAs complete the MBA process and they've never actually taken a deep level course in pricing. It's not done. Maybe they had pricing as a small part of their uh, marketing curriculum, or they understood what a margin is from accounting. Okay, that's great. Knowing what a, how to calculate a margin doesn't tell me how to price. No. And so I thought if I wrote pricing strategy, a textbook, I could teach the world how to price and we'd all be better off. Well, that was stupid again because the people didn't see a reason to learn how to do that. I mean, the book has gone global. It sells well. It's being sold and across Europe, China, China, India, really big buyers of this book, as well as the States, uh, to some degree. Anyway, so that I thought if I train people in pricing, we'll be able to make more progress in this field and make the world a better place. Well, yeah, yeah, it wasn't a lack of knowledge that was causing it. It was a lack of uh, well-being. Yeah, where it is. So I thought maybe if I fix the organization, I'd address the organizational issue, pricing would move forward. That was pricing done right. And pricing done right, they refer to a framework being written on page seven. Tim, of the Tim you're dealing with wicked problems. That's what you're dealing with. It's a, it's a series of interconnected, intertwined problems where whatever you try first doesn't work. The stakeholders differ and vary and come in and out at will. The rules change as you go, and there are no perfect solutions, only imperfect outcomes. So you've got to keep going back and back and back. The problem is if you try and fix one without fixing the other moving parts, then it goes wrong. And this is why the whole concept of the multidisciplinary management team is so important. And yeah. one, one of the things that I see, which is really important, is the middle management layer needs to be freed up from doing low value supervisory bullying micromanagement shit. And they need to be focused on strategy, planning, building the bench, coaching, developing their people into departmental um, cooperation. This kind of stuff would mean that businesses explode. But instead, they implode because they spend most of their time rubbing themselves, telling themselves why it's some other department's fault. Yes, that interdisciplinary stuff is so key. And that was the thesis behind pricing done right. And the, all of my books have done well in the market. And they've people cite them when they're trying to talk to the CEOs, even the other consulting firms refer to my books and my ideas when talking to clients. I've done well in writing these ideas, but I wasn't changing the world fast enough. And I realized it was the CEOs, she or he, that needed to be woken up about the impact of pricing. So I've started writing pricing spinometers where I grade them on a one to five scale. You got five vertebrae. Out of five, that's a good spine. You got one out of five vertebrae. There's a problem here. Have you got the jelly version so it goes into the negative? So jelly. I've had requests multiple times. I've even had people say, "No, I thought this customer should have gotten negative five vertebrae." But I, I've avoided using negative numbers because uh, did you know back in the 1200s we thought negative numbers were from Satan? Really. Unfortunately, we thought a lot of really stupid things back then. Then again, we think yes. a lot of stupid things now. So <laughs> yes. who am I to judge? I decided to avoid negative numbers because I accept the idea that people may have a problem with them. 
Tim, we've come to time. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? Well, they can contact me at Wiglaf Pricing and they can find me on LinkedIn as, you know, Dr. Wiglaf. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, not Dr. Whiplash, Dr. Wiglaf. <laughs> We're going to keep that in the outtake. Uh, excellent. Uh, Tim Smith, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Cowley signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Leave us an honest review and please get in touch with Tim. If you have pricing questions, then get in touch. Uh, he knows his shit. So don't make the mistake of leaving money on the table and don't keep giving away margin because uh, you lack spine. And CEOs, pay attention. It's your job to make a profit. If you're not looking at your pricing and helping your salespeople understand why pricing is an essential component, you are doing them a massive disservice. So with that beating in mind, if you're looking for a grumpy, miserable old coach uh, who is perfectly happy to kick your ass when you need it and not withhold uh, a good drubbing, um, but will always have your back and tell you the truth, then drop me a line if you're looking for a difficult and unconventional path to growing your business. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.